Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for tuning in to the Go and Teach radio program. I'm Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. There is nothing that we love more at Monte Vista than God. We love to talk about God. We love to study about God. We love to align our lives with His will. So if there's any questions that you have about God or about the Bible or really anything of a spiritual nature, then please reach out to Monte Vista. We'd love to sit down, open up our Bibles together, and get those questions answered. Now, our program today is going to talk about repentance. It's a word that's mentioned about 140 times in the Bible, and its synonyms are mentioned even more times than that. It is a word that's powerful in its true meaning, a word which evokes the truest feelings and passions of the Christian ideal, a word that means to improve oneself, to go beyond the muck that encumbers our souls. A word that carries with it the idea of flushing the sin out of our lives. Unfortunately, as I talk to a lot of other religious people, I don't find repentance being on their minds very often. Now, some groups out there are outright hostile toward repentance. They will not teach the idea that we need to change somehow or put a life of sin behind us when we become Christians. Some believe that all we have to do is either dunk a person in water and everything is just fine, or even worse, that all you have to do is read the sinner's prayer on the back of a pamphlet and nothing else needs to be done. Just come as you are is the popular refrain of a lot of religious groups out there. But if we look at the Bible, we'll find that God does expect much more of us when it comes to repentance. He expects not only a change of heart, but a change of action as well. It's one thing to just feel sorry about your sins or really even worse, to not feel sorry at all, but just to leave it up to God. It's an entirely different thing to do something about it, no matter how hard it may be. The biblical definition of repentance is important. In any study of a word like this, you need to first look at what the word actually means, especially in the context of the Bible. Now, in the Greek, which is the primary language of the New Testament, and the translated Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word for repentance is metanoeo, which literally means to perceive something after it's been done, and then to change one's mind about it. And the common usage of the word suggests a change of action as well, that when you perceive something after it's been done, and you desert, and you determine to change your mind about it, that your actions are going to follow as well. It's not just the idea of acknowledging the fact that you have sinned or that you've had a sinful life before. And it's not just the idea of feeling guilty about that sinful life. It's perceiving what you've done, coming to grips with it, recognizing it, taking responsibility for it, and then changing the course of your life from then on. 
And every single time that repentance is used in the New Testament, it's referring to a change of action for the better. Nobody repents to get worse. You always repent to get better. Nobody repents to make things worse or to make more of a mess. You repent to clean things up, to improve something. Now, we know that repentance is an essential part of salvation because we see it exemplified and mentioned right alongside other actions that speak about salvation. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, for example, the apostle Peter is asked by the crowd, what must we do? That's not just a suggestion they're asking for. They want to know, what are we commanded to do? What must we do? And he responds, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That repentance and baptism is for, it is unto, in the Greek it's eis, it is unto the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance and baptism accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. We see that repentance leads the soul to forgiveness again in Acts 5, verse 31, where again the Apostle Peter says, Christ is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. We see that repentance also leads to knowledge. Go to 2 Timothy in the New Testament. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. He says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps may God, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So with the rest of our program, I want to look at three misconceptions about repentance that we often find in the broader religious community. So let's look first at the idea that repentance is limited only to those who already know what was right and wrong. That is, that ignorance provides some kind of exemption from accountability. That if you didn't know what you were doing was wrong, then you don't need to repent of what you were doing. If you were completely ignorant of it, then you have nothing to change, nothing to repent of. That ignorance, somehow or another, excuses us from accountability to God. And yet, the Bible gives us very clear instruction in this matter. Take, for example, a story from the book of 2 Kings. It's in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 22, we meet a young man named Josiah. Josiah is king over Judah, and for years the people of his kingdom were completely unaware of the law that was given to them by Moses back at Mount Sinai. They were in complete ignorance of the laws of God. And yet, as can be seen from verse 11 of this chapter, When King Josiah was informed about the existence of long lost scrolls from God, and he read from that law, he tore his clothes. Even in his ignorance, Josiah knew that he was guilty of sin. Not only then does he repair the sin in his life, but he also travels his country tearing down high places and idols. We read of all of his good deeds in 2 Kings chapter 23 as a follow-up to his realization that they had been ignoring the law of God. Now, they weren't doing it on purpose. At, at some point years before, the scroll of the law of God had been tucked away. Somebody, out of neglect or on purpose, took the law of God, stuffed it in a little room in the temple, and sealed the door. Somebody either didn't want the law of God to be known 
or somebody just didn't realize what they were doing in hiding away the law of God. Nevertheless, these scrolls were hidden away, and for years people didn't know, at least precisely, they couldn't read with their own eyes off the scrolls themselves. They didn't know precisely what the laws of God were, but they were still accountable to them, and they needed to repent. Nearly the whole chapter of 2 Kings 23 details how Josiah went about teaching the people the law and returned their hearts to God. How he reinstated the Passover festival. How he slaughtered priests of the idols. And, as is stated in 2 Kings 23 verse 25, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Nobody was like him in the way that he turned to God. If ignorance is a valuable excuse for sin, then Josiah and his people had nothing to worry about. They were ignorant of all the sins they had committed, yet they still repented of them and obeyed the Lord. Now go to Second Thessalonians in the New Testament. This is a short epistle, a short letter, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We'll start back here in verse 6 for some context. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? To repay with affliction those who are afflicting others. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, verse 7, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That is the judgment day. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Now we see from this text that the punishment of God, the retribution, comes not only on those who disobey him knowingly, but also to those who do not know him. People who do not know God. To an unbeliever, this may sound like a very cruel thing, but to the Christian, this should sound like a call to service. This world desperately needs the gospel and its power unto salvation. It also reminds me of the analogy in Ezekiel chapter 33. In verses 1 through 9, we read there that if a city is pillaged and burned and its occupants are slaughtered because the watchman of that city was lazy... Neither the inhabitants of the city nor the watchman himself will be spared. Just because those unsuspecting citizens didn't know about an imminent attack doesn't mean they were exempt from that attack. And I think that analogy is really powerful. You might not know that you have cancer right now, but ignorance of cancer does not spare you from cancer. You might have no idea that some very important component in your car's engine is already on its way to being broken, that there's something about it, it's halfway torn, halfway broken, halfway wrenched somehow. You might be completely ignorant that that very important component is about to break. So you get on the freeway and start driving 65, 70 miles an hour. The component breaks, your car flips over. Do you still have to face the consequences of it, even though you were ignorant of that broken component? Ignorance does not spare us. Not knowing is not an excuse that God will accept. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. 
The gospel takes ignorant people and makes them knowing people. The gospel takes people who are lost in sin and maybe don't even realize how lost they are, and it gives them direction, guidance, and sets them on the path toward heaven. The beautiful thing about repentance, repentance means I don't have to be defined by what I've been so far, but I can take my life, flip it around with God's power, with God's help, and I can become a saint. I don't have to be a sinner forever. I can be a saint, and I can be a saint now, and I can be a saint in heaven for the rest of eternity. So let's move on now to a second misconception about repentance, and that is that only certain people are required to repent of their sins and become accountable to God. We often listen to the phrase, well, I just don't believe in a vengeful God, or my God would never condemn anybody like that. The answer to that is, I simply believe in the God that's found in the Bible. God is the mighty one, the only God of this existence. He's a God full of wrath. He is a consuming fire, according to Hebrews 12:29. It is indeed a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10, verse 31. But at the same time, and in complete agreement with that vengeance, God is also loving. He's powerful. He's wonderful. He's merciful, he's gentle, and he's tender to those who obey him and follow his will. When it all boils down to it, we have the true God, the one and only on our side. And no other man-made God or no other man-made idea or perception of God can claim such radiant majesty. Go to Isaiah 46 if you want to follow along here. It's one of the, one of the longer books in the Old Testament... Isaiah 46, and notice verse 1. Bel has bowed down, and Nebo stoops over. These are some of the idols of their contemporaries. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they've bowed down, they could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. He goes on to say in verse 5, This is God speaking here through the prophet. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from distress. Remember this and be assured, he says in verse 8. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. In comparison to the gods of man, our Lord is indescribably more powerful. The same can be said of today's man-made religions. Maybe the God you want to believe in doesn't require you to make any changes to your life. Maybe the God that you want to believe in uh, has no problem with sins, or at least your particular sin that you don't want to change. Maybe the God that you believe in sits by approvingly, jovially, laughing alongside you, the same way that an old man at a family reunion laughs with his family. Maybe that God doesn't care that you're sinning. Maybe that God doesn't 
care about repentance. But that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. And the God that you want to believe in does not have the works of God to his credit. The God of the Bible has no conflict. The one true God is both the ten plagues brought upon Egypt and the mercy shown to Israel by releasing them from slavery. The one true God is the judgment that's brought upon Judas for betraying Jesus, as well as the forgiveness given to Peter when he repented of his sin, when he repented and showed great sorrow and resolved to do better after he betrayed Jesus. The, the one true God is both Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction of those cities, as well as keeping the great promises to a man of faith like Abraham. And there is no conflict between those things. There is no conflict. The same God who offers you full pardon from your sins does require you to stop sinning. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, the Apostle Peter said in Acts 2, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, a third misconception about repentance is possibly the most common one of all. One may say that he has felt guilty for a sin and that he's mentally devoted himself to God, but that's all that's required of him. That is to say that repentance is just grief. It's just feeling guilty. Proponents of this want to make Christianity kind of a warm and fuzzy religion with little or no requirements for daily life. We would hear, as long as you just feel bad about what you've done, or if you believe you're okay, then you are okay. And what results is half-hearted Christians, with one half of the heart going to God and the other half still stuck in the world. And we meet people like this all the time, people who claim to be Christians, yet use foul language when the preacher's not around. Or people who attend worship services on a regular attitude with, with one attitude, but will, will treat their families with a different attitude. They're the kind of Christians who gossip or who push the boundaries when it comes to how they dress, what they partake of, social drinking, the kind of language they use, sex-filled television programs, while all the time putting up a good front for their fellow Christians. But the Bible sees repentance differently. In fact, Christians are expected to be righteous, honest, holy people, not half-hearted people. We're expected to do the hard things when nobody else will. We're expected to reject sin in our lives to such a degree that we make an impression on our peers. We don't simply avoid alcohol abuse. We avoid alcohol altogether. We don't simply abstain from sex before marriage, we abstain from pornography and every act of lust. We must do the opposite of what we did in our sinful lives. Like Ephesians chapter 4 points out, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good. And by the way, Ephesians 4 is a great passage when it comes to sin. It says in verse 25, lay aside falsehood and speak truth. So what he's saying is, stop, stop speaking falsehood and speak truth. Verse 26, be angry, but do not sin. Stop being angry in a sinful way. Verse 29, don't let unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth, but only words that are good for edification. Verse 30, stop grieving the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 31, let bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and all these things be put away with you. And instead, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It's the opposite. Repentance is the opposite of continuing in sin. Where once you were the broken sinner, living rebelliously, whether knowingly or ignorantly, it doesn't matter. You were living in sin. And the gospel takes broken sinner and makes working saint. Sometimes repentance is difficult. Some sins and their consequences want to follow us for the rest of our lives, tempting us, enticing us, deceiving us, reminding us of all the fun that we once had before we gave our lives over to Christ. Alcoholics who become Christians will probably want alcohol, at least in some degree, for the rest of their lives. People who are homosexual may always have a strong desire to follow that path of sin. But the true Christian will reject sin and repair the damage in his or her life, and that is repentance. The true Christian will do the difficult task of following the Lord wherever that path may lead and whatever the sacrifice needs to be made. That is what repentance is. Let's start bringing this to a close with a really great example from 1 Corinthians 6. This is in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Isn't it interesting? Sin tricks us. Sin deceives us. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who are effeminate by perversion, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you in verse 11. Such were some of you. You were drunkards, and you were liars, and you were adulterers, and you stole things, and you coveted. You were these things. Now he says, you were. Past tense. Now what's implied there is that you're not anymore. You were an adulterer, and you're not anymore. You were a drunkard, or you were a homosexual, or you were a reviler, and you're not anymore. You've put away the actions, not just the attitudes. You haven't just felt bad about it. You didn't just feel guilty about being an adulterer. You stopped being an adulterer. You didn't just feel bad about being a drunkard. You stopped being a drunkard. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So there's some really valuable lessons we can learn from the Corinthians. Primarily, we find that these Corinthians, most of whom were Gentiles, were most certainly under a specific outlined law, that they were accountable, even though they maybe didn't know the specifics of it in their Gentile ignorance, they were under a law. They were not protected by ignorance, and they were not protected by their own self-derived moral code. The sins that are described in this text are very specific sins, some of which would not have been considered sinful to a Gentile, as in alcoholism or being a drunkard. It's not illegal for most people. Neither is homosexuality and neither is adultery. These things aren't illegal. But these ignorant, unbelieving, 
supposedly lawless Gentile Corinthians were still being judged by God through Jesus Christ, and they were still criminals held accountable to the gospel. Another lesson that's valuable is that nobody is stuck in any kind of sin, no matter how strong the temptation might be. These Corinthians were a lot of things, and yet they changed, and they became Christians. Now, again, that doesn't mean the desire instantly changes. It, it certainly doesn't mean that, that you're not going to face a temptation for the rest of your life that accompanies the sin to which you were so easily entangled. But you've got to change your actions. Overcome the action. These people were living in adulterous, incestuous relationships, yet they rejected that so that they could live for Christ. And when you live for Christ now, you will get to live with Christ for all eternity. And if you'd like to study this topic or any other topic of a biblical or spiritual nature, then please reach out to Monte Vista. Until then, keep studying, keep praying, keep seeking God. And as always, have a blessed day. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Montavista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.